Hope you guys had a great Independence Day. My family and I did. My neighbor throws this Independence Day shindig, and this thing is... It's, it's something else. My neighbor, he went to Georgia Tech, and I think he majored in some type of engineering, but I think he might have minored in pyrotechnics. I'm mean, kidding you. He had these barges with fireworks out on the lake behind our house, and they were fused to different sequences. He had this playlist. I mean, it was just something else. Independence Day was good. My kids got terrified of the fireworks, but it was all good. It was a lot of fun. And they just keep going in Georgia. All hours of the night, it doesn't matter, right? They just keep going, and they'll probably go on for a couple more weeks. We're, we're proud of our independence from Britain, that's for sure. This morning is beautiful because as a country we're celebrating independence, but as Christians we're celebrating dependence. Dependence upon Jesus, dependence upon his family that he's made for us, which is a much different message than independence. So let me say this, your union with God through Christ is the most important thing about you. Your union with God through Christ is the most important thing about you. Now while we're talking about marriage... Some of you are going to be tempted to think about uh, your status, whether you're married, single, widowed, any of the above, as the most important thing about you. And our culture, even with the, the recent decision the Supreme Court's handed down, it's even polarized single people even more. Today we want to say that the most important thing about you is your union with Christ. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7.29. This is kind of the pre-sermon this morning. 1 Corinthians 7.29 says this, this is what I mean, brothers. This is when Paul is talking about, he's, he's encouraging the church at Corinth to live as they are called, and it's in the context of marriage. And he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And he goes on to say, whether you're single or you're married, it's a gift from God. So live according to that gift that God has given you for this season. So what's Paul mean here? This whole idea of the appointed time is referring to the kingdom of God. And Paul likens the Christian marriage to the portrait of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom has been inaugurated, meaning Jesus has come, he's died on a cross, he's risen from the dead, he's inaugurated, ushered in his kingdom, he's given us his Holy Spirit, which is the presence of his kingdom. And we are are charged with living, as we just sang, in the presence of God, which brings forth the kingdom of God. And although it hasn't been fulfilled yet, his kingdom, that happens at the wedding supper of the Lamb in in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns. So we're kind of in this already not yet time of the kingdom of God. And it's a very exciting time because we're getting getting to see God uh, make all things new through his people. We get to be instruments of that renewal that God is bringing. Paul's encouraging them to live as they're called. and, and, And the thing I want us to remember is that we have... A perfect father in heaven. And this perfect father has seen it fit to give us a perfect family. And, and whether you're single, you're married, you're widowed, God has given you a family. And your union with Christ is the most important thing about you. And your union with Christ is what brings you into that family. And so here at New City Church, we really want to focus on the fact that there are some married, there are some single. They, they, they come with different responsibilities, different giftings, different seasons of life. But that's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is your union with Christ. The big idea for today is this. Marriage is more about God than me. Marriage is more about God than me. You see, it's only when we truly see this that we can live as we've been called. When we see that marriage, that our, even our physical marriage, our physical if you're single, your physical desire to be married 
It's more about God than it is the, the physical element of marriage. It's, it's all about God. It's all pointing to God. And just because you're married, quite frankly, doesn't mean you're living as you're called, as you've been called to live. Just because you're single doesn't mean you're living as you've been called to live. So we're going to look a little bit more into this today, particularly from the text of Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and his himself, its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We are thankful that it has great power. That even though the Apostle Paul may have originally penned this, that this came from you. That your Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to write what they wrote. And these are your words. And you have carried them along from age to age. And you've kept them. And we get to sit under them this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would change us. That you would reorder our lives in such a way that we would reflect your son Jesus even more by the way that we live out this word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So there's three big themes about women's role in marriage that I want to look at. And this can, this can relate to women in general if you're married or not. So I want to look at those. Those three things are this. Submission, respect, and beauty. Those are the three kind of areas we're going to focus in on this morning. Before we get to that, just as I did last week, I want to look at some distortions, some sinful distortions of women's role in marriage. And this is what our culture really likes to focus in on and what the scriptures say about a biblical marriage. And so I want to spend some time on those as we get into it this morning. So these distortions in women's marriage. Both of these distortions are birthed by a lack of trust in God's word. Tim Keller says that in the Western world, marriage is all about me. And so people will get married in the Western world if they, if typically, culturally speaking, if it can benefit them, if there's some assets that are brought to the table, some sexual desires that are met without the guilt, things like that. That's typically the way that a Western mind thinks. Marriage is all about me. So if you can add, if you can add to me, uh, then it's good to be married. If you can't add to me, well, I'm just going to kind of keep on going single. And the Apostle Paul, what he kind of teaches us today is it's not really about that at all. So the first distortion of this is inferiority. Inferiority says this, that women are inferior to men. That, that you're actually not made in the image of God. That you're actually less than man. 
That's the first distortion of what the scriptures are calling us to here. It says that you're not, you don't bear God's image uh, because you're less than. You, you have to be equal and have the same roles to bear God's image. Some women may be tempted to think, marriage is the place where my dreams go and they die. It's where they're put in the grave so that my husband's dreams can live. Uh, when you're thinking from an inferiority standpoint, that's the way you think about your dreams in marriage. Uh, or for the rest of my life, I'm just a housewife. Th- these are some of the distortions of inferiority in marriage. And I just want to say this right off the bat. Ladies, you're not inferior to man. The scriptures teach this in no way, shape, or form. You are complementary to man. And because you're made in God's image, you bring a part of the character and nature of God to a marriage that w- the world would never be able to see apart from that. You bring a, a side of nurture and compassion that men, quite frankly, they just can't, they, they don't bring that to the table. The world is a much better place because of you. And the Lord Jesus knows this. God knows this. This is why he made you to be you. You are not inferior to man. The second distortion is this, feminism. Feminism says that women are better than men. It's kind of a course correction of inferiority. It jumps to the other side of the ditch. And feminism says this to the man. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. That's what feminism says. In feminism, the gloves are on and we're duking it out to see who can rise to the top, who can get the better job, who can do things better. And it fails to understand the fact that God has made us complementary, that the two become one flesh. The two don't come together and still remain two flesh. They become one flesh, as the scriptures say. Feminism promises liberation. It says, women, you'll be free if you just view your gender role this way. It, it promises liberation from perceived bondage of God's design. But ultimately it delivers, listen to this, it delivers the same despair that any other attempt humanity tries to find in, in, in ordering its life around God's rule and reign and design. It delivers the same despair. In Genesis 3.16, the scripture literally says that as one of the results of the fall for women, it says your desire will be for your husband. And what it means is your, de- your desire will be for his role. It will be against your husband. This is, one of the, this is one of the signs of the fall. This is how it's affected women. And for men, our work is really hard. And our, our marriage isn't as unified as we want it to be. Marriage is work. And that's what Genesis 3.16 teaches us. And so when we're dealing with this uh, either inferiority or a femi- feministic kind of tendencies, and I think in every, every marriage, women, you're probably prone to go one way or the other just as a man is, is prone to go towards passivity, as we said, or chauvinism, you're, you're, you have a leaning one way or the other. None of us walk this out perfectly because there's still sin in the world. But the thing I think we, got, we have to see about marriage is that it's complementary. Men and women in marriage, they complement each other well. And this is why we've got to put down the gloves in marriage and really seek the Holy Spirit's guidance on how he makes this one. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, as he's talking about women in marriage, he says, they too men are heirs to the throne of grace. And he says, hey, you need to treat them this way because otherwise your prayers are going to be hindered. That's what the word says. So there's something to be said about that. 
I was reading and studying this week for this sermon, and I came across a quote from a campus minister at Vanderbilt University. If you know anything about Vanderbilt, it's a very liberal school. Some of you went to school there. (laughs) For the most part, it's a very liberal school. Uh, We have several alum here at New City Church. So this campus minister noticed as she spent time with both traditional conservative women and more liberal women in their view of gender roles, she noticed the common theme. So I want to read this quote for you. It doesn't matter what the intelligent women on this campus, it doesn't matter if they're liberal feminist or conservative traditionalist, if you can get them to talk honestly about their deepest concerns, most will say that they still wonder if their choices are right. Deep down, they are desperate for a credible authority to tell them what women are supposed to be. Man or woman, doesn't matter. We're all, when we push everything aside, that's what we're asking God. Who am I supposed to be? And his word tells us that. And the question is, well, will we obey the word today? Will we listen to what God's word has to say about how he's created to be? So let's look at the redeemed side of this. So what are women supposed to be in marriage? Well, three things that I said, there's, there's this submission component that is, we really kick against that, and I want to try to unpack that a little bit more and defuse that time bomb, okay? And then there's also this beauty component that you bring to the table. That's quite frankly, you know, us as men, we really enjoy that, that, that you don't look like us, that you don't act like us. We really enjoy that. And there's this respect component, this honor, this reverence component. So let's dive into submission first. I got to confess, anytime I hear the word submission, you know what my mind immediately jumps to? Wrestling. Now, I don't want, I don't want to give you a picture of what my marriage is like, where it's not like we're, you know, WWE off the, off the top rope uh, in our house or anything like that. When I think about the word submission, I think about wrestling. And if you know anything about wrestling, a submission hold is a very forceful hold that draws your opponent to the point of submission. And they tap out. This is not, I repeat, this is not what Paul had in mind when he told wives to submit to their husbands. The first thing we need to clarify about submission is that submission is first and foremost the call of every single Christian. So let's look back at at Ephesians 5.21 and kind of read this real quick. Ephesians 5.21 says this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's talking, he's speaking to the Ephesian church, which would include men and women. And he says, part of your role, part of this unity you're seeking will come as the Holy Spirit leads you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I think when we hear the word submission, we typically think of, oh yeah, I'm supposed to submit to my husband. I'm supposed to be a pushover to do whatever he says. That's not what God's called you to at all, actually. He's called us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because King Jesus is our king. We're not king anymore. That's what he's called us to. So that's the first thing I want to lay this foundation of submission by talking about it like that. Submission is the result of humility. And true humility can only come about in an environment of deep love. That's the only time you'll be humble is when you feel that you are deeply loved and you are secure in who God has made you to be. Because our will and our desires have been twisted by sin, Jesus had to come and make this right. He, he had to come and give us a way. So, so Jesus and the Father, they experienced this deep, 
environment of love where Jesus was equal with God, but he perfectly submitted to God. And he said, Father, I'll go to the cross. I'll, I'll do what you want. I'll go to the world. I'll go save them. Father, I'll do your will. And even in the garden, we get this picture where Jesus is like, man, if there's any other way, if there's any way, let me out of this thing. And he obeys to the point of death, even death on a cross, as the scriptures say. So in the fall, a rebellion occurred. In Genesis, when, when, when man chose to rebel against God, to defy against God, we became defiant, lost children of God. We became hopeless wanderers when we made that decision. You say, I didn't make that decision. I wasn't in the garden. Well, Adam spoke for us. And we became children of Adam. All those that came from Adam. We are children of Adam and Eve. He left us hopelessly longing for rescue. So we became truly independent. You want independence? Well, you got it in the garden. It's not what you want at all. And so what does Jesus do? How does he come and reorder things to make us right with God? Well, let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 here. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, you Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he was God. He is God did not count equality a thing to be grasped. He did not go after that. Equality wasn't what he was after, even though he was equal, even though he is equal. He didn't go after that. He didn't want to be independent of God. But instead, he emptied himself. Humility. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He put down the sword and picked up a towel. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, this applies to everyone in the world right here by the way, that the name of Jesus, every, not a few, not some, every knee should bow, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So it's all in submission to the Father. So Jesus willingly submitted to the Father. And you know what he had to do? Jesus had to suffer the isolation that we sought in the garden. He had to suffer the isolation to become the second Adam, the better Adam, our better elder brother that rescues us. And by faith in Jesus, we are rescued. Just by default, we are lost when we come into the world because we are born of Adam. He rescues us. He brings us back into dependence upon the Father. He brings us back into this environment of deep, deep love where we can say, as we sang today, we have a good, good Father. It's who He is. This is the atmosphere that humility, which produces submission to one another, thrives in. It's where it comes from. You'll never get a biblical submission to one another, a humility, a reverence, a respect for one another, apart from that. They'll always be, you'll always be entangled with some other type of ulterior motive. It comes from this deep, deep security that we find in God's love. And this is all a portrait of how we were designed to live in an inseparable relationship with God. And have you noticed how in marriage, it says the two become one? It's all a portrait of God's relationship with us. That's what marriage is. Marriage is more about God than it is me. 
want you to listen to Kathy Reimer's quote about this right here, a female perspective on this, a biblical female perspective. For many of us wives, our view of being submissive to our husbands tends to be somewhat skewed. We look at it as intrusive, controlling, humiliating, but it is not. Listen to this, ladies. Don't miss this. Submission requires strength. <laughs> requires strength. I thought I had to be a pushover. No. Not weakness, and it takes courage. It requires a strong belief and trust that God knew what he was doing in the garden. When he established this chain of command, when he established his word back in the days of Adam and Eve. It requires strength, not, not to be a, a passivity or anything like that. It requires strength and courage that God knew what he was doing. Submission in marriage is primarily about God. I was thinking about this in, uh, in this context of submission and marriage. I, I'm doing a wedding in a couple of weeks, so I wrote a marriage homily, if you will. Hopefully it's not like an hour or anything like that, because then everybody would be really mad at me. I was writing this this week, and I was thinking about, you know, when those two are standing up there together, what they're doing is they're making a covenant. Everybody there that's going to be watching this marriage, they're not just going to be watching it. They're witnesses of a covenant that's being made. And when we think about a marriage covenant, I want you to think about a marriage covenant in light of God's covenant that he's made with us. And here's the truth about God's covenant that he's made with us. If it were a contract, we would break it off. We would have broke it off on the way here this morning. We would say, okay, God, I'm out. I don't want to do this thing. But when we submit to God, we make a covenant. And God secures the covenant. You know how he secures the covenant? By Jesus raising from the dead. And so what that means is, is that the covenant is always secure for us. Even though the world looks crazy and we're super sinful, the covenant is secure for the children of God because Jesus rose from the dead. That same covenant-keeping love that God shows toward his children is the same power that will keep your marriage together. The grace of God is the glue that holds everything together. This is why, this is why when I have people that come to me and they, they don't believe in Jesus and they want to get married, I'm like, why? Why do you want to get married? The only thing that keeps us together is the grace of God. Secondly, Scriptures call in Ephesians 5.33 this idea of respect that Paul mentions. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Fellas, we talked about that last week. We all got hit in the teeth. It was good. And the scriptures say this, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Megan and I have some friends in Indiana that will remain unnamed. We lived in Indiana for four years previous to, to living here in Atlanta. I have this one friend that's kind of a hardcore kind of guy. And there were a couple times where he would just kind of make little snarky comments about his wife. And it kind of rubbed us the wrong way. And we talk about it and we're like, hey, let's never do that. That's not real cool, you know. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, my wife, it was one of those moments where I was like, hey, I don't know what's about to happen right here. But this, in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't, this ain't going to be good. And Megan, Megan says this when he makes this comment about his wife, throws her under the bus. She said, do you know what, you know what you're doing to your wife? Do you know what you're doing to your marriage when you make those kind of comments? Do you understand the divisiveness that you're creating by talking about the person that God has brought you into relationship with? And it was one of those moments where I was like, whoa. But it's true. We all have this kind of false facade, this idea of what respect is, because that, we know that that's not respect. That's the extreme. 
But we have these other false illusions of what respect is in marriage, too. And, and here are a couple of them that I want to share with you, and I hope I don't frustrate anyone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick against the grain a little bit here. One of them is this one right here. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? That's a false idea of respect. Happy wife, happy life. False idea of respect. When women say boys will be false idea of respect. Why is this a false idea of respect? You're like, man, you just like knocked out like half of the vocabulary I use. Why is this a false idea of respect? Well, it's a false idea of respect because it's birthed out of, a, of kind of a philosophy of marital fatalism. What do you, so what's marital fatalism? Well, it's this view of marriage where we say, well, I've come to die in this relationship, so it must be, let me make it a pleasant death. So I'll, I'll give her what she wants, and she'll give me what I want, and we'll just kind of die together. It's marital fatalism. It's not, it's not what God intended. And so what we're doing is we're resorting to live separate yet together lives for the rest of our lives. And so it kind of starts out with those kind of snarky comments, and maybe you'll continue making that comment, and God's doing great things in your marriage. Praise God if he is. But maybe he's not. So it begins as innocent as those words, and then it moves to separate bank accounts in your marriage. It moves to, you know, separate beds, and eventually separate lives when the kids go off to college. Marital fatalism. It's a false idea of respect. When we think about respect, when you think about, I can't say we because I'm not a woman, but when, when ladies typically think about respect, or when I, I think about respect as well, we typically use phrases like this, you have to earn respect. And we teach our kids that. You've got to earn respect. And I think there's some truth in that, to be responsible. The scriptures say, you know, the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. There's some truth in that. But if we had to earn respect, none of us would have any respect to give or get, right? Because you know what we've earned ourselves? The cross. That's what we've earned. But we didn't bear the cross. Jesus bore the cross. So because of that, there's this idea of grace, that we get a respect that we don't deserve, and we can give a respect that other people don't earn. And so what does that mean in marriage? I just want to say this. Ladies, if you're kind of in a place where you can't give respect to your husband unless he earns it, I want to challenge you to look at the cross. I'm not talking about abusive relationships. We need to, we need to get, seek help in those. But just in that kind of constant kind of back and forth kind of thing when there's really not any respect there, I want to challenge you to look at the cross and the work of Christ and ask God to, to fill your well with the grace of God so that you can give it away. You can't give respect unless you see your man is made in the image of God. Now, when you see him made in the image of God, you're probably tempted, if you've been married for over a couple years, you're probably tempted to think, well, I see all the ways he's not made in the image of God. <laughs> but I want, to, I want to challenge you to think about your husband and, and say, he's not all that he's going to be, but he's who God's called me to be with. He's not, all, he's, he's not there yet. And then to look at yourself and say, well, I'm not there yet either. And husbands, you're like, yeah, there's a couple areas she's not there yet either. We're not where we're going yet. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. Ladies, your man is God's man for the job in your life. And I would say this, no one can flourish in a condemning environment. So if it's one of those things where it's kind of this back and forth of respect, and you're kind of like, well, hey, you didn't mow the grass today. No respect for me. Or whatever it is, you know, you didn't do the honey-do list or whatever it is. 
to try to establish in your home through God's grace, an environment of grace in your home where respect flows because you see each other made as the image of God and filled with the Spirit of God. Ladies, your husband needs to, needs to, needs to see and hear that you believe in him. Because in the world, there's this competitive desire. You know, husbands are constantly trying to prove ourselves through our work. That's what we're doing. And every time we're reminded that we've fallen short, we feel like failures. The respect and honor that women give to their husbands draws out the truth of God that he's put in each one of us. That we are all fatally flawed, but we're also eternally redeemed. It's this kind of mixture there that God does a beautiful thing. They need to hear that. And communication is going to be key in this. If you want to see respect kind of flourish in your family, Megan and I kind of developed a rule early on in our marriage that everything was on the table, even if we didn't want to hear it. (laughs) There's been some really good conversations. There's also been some that haven't been so pleasant. And so we kind of make it a rule because both of us kind of learned from our, our first elder brother, Adam, how to suppress things. Growing up, both of us just suppress things. And when you suppress things, they don't go away. They blow up. That's what happens. And so when you begin to talk about things, even when the thoughts aren't fully formed yet, you open this dialogue where you, you, you throw it out on the table and you say, God, help us. Help us deal with it. Here's how I'm feeling. How do we deal with this? And I'm telling you, even though it looks like a bunch of throw up, you're going to feel so much better and God's going to do so much work rather than keeping that inside. Sorry to get graphic. I hope, you, hope you're still wanting some lunch after this. That's kind of the way it is when you communicate. Just to kind of recap this point, we can do nothing to earn respect. None of us can. Respect and honor are given from a reflection of us being made in the image of God and being redeemed by Jesus. That's where it comes from. So that that will be the the fountain that your respect and honor for one another flows from. Not from, well, you did this, you did that, tit for tat kind of a thing. It'll come from Jesus. Lastly, beauty. We're going to flip over to 1 Peter 3. There's, there's some other passages in the Scripture, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, that talk about roles in marriage. And I'm flipping over to 1 Peter 3, to verses 3 through 6, to look a little at what Peter says about this too. My five-year-old daughter walked in a couple weeks ago, and she watches Megan get ready, you know, put makeup on and stuff. And so occasionally she'll get a little eyeshadow out and be, you know, just put some on, a little lipstick, get it all over her face, and stuff like that. She's, she's being discipled by mom in these ways. And she walked out the other day, and I was like, <clears throat> go back in. No, no, no. She had so much eyeshadow on, let's just say it was noticeable, okay? It was noticeable. My thing is, hey, look, you want to put on some eyeshadow, fine, but we better not be able to notice it, right? Because you're five, and, and we want to keep this period of your life where you, where you really sense that you're beautiful and that, and that daddy and mommy can tell you're beautiful and you hear that God says that you're made in his image and you really believe that. We want to keep that alive as long as possible. So let's, let's kind of push these lies I said, you got to go wipe that stuff off, girl. you got way too much makeup on. And, and Tatum, in her heart of hearts, wants to be beautiful. Husbands, your wife in her heart of hearts, she wants to be beautiful. And she is beautiful. And she needs to hear from you that she is beautiful. But the thing about beauty is, is that we get it, we get it wrong because we take most of our cues from the culture. You know, those little tabloids, you know, when you're going through the grocery store. Those are, I just want to light those on fire every time I walk by them. I just wanted to dump some, you know, lighter fluid out and just, just burn them up. So if that happens, somebody come bail me out of jail. You can call me a martyr, right? Martyr for the truth of God. 
So 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about this from a different view. See, we look at beauty as an external thing. We look at it as an external thing in all of life. But this is not what God thinks of when he thinks of beauty. What's he think of? 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, obviously this was a cultural thing here, so let's get past that. I don't want you to think, oh, can't put braids in my hair anymore. Not what he's saying here. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Meg and I expect that this afternoon. Just totally kidding here. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now it's obvious that Peter is going after the heart here. That the Holy Spirit is going after the heart when we speak about beauty with women. So what this is saying is that the gospel works from the inside out, not the outside in. The gospel works from the inside out. So the Lord Jesus begins through his spirit to work on our hearts and to transform our hearts and to make us beautiful on the inside. And that's, that's the thing that's actually imperishable. So we'll always be putting, we'll always be fixing up ourselves to look better and better and better as long as we live. But the, the beauty on the inside, it doesn't fade, it doesn't go away. You get more beautiful with time. And this is a gift, ladies, that God has created in you specifically. I mean, I don't meet very many men and say, man, you have just such a beautiful heart. That's what men do. We're like Mike. Beauty is something that the women have been called to kind of reflect an image in God to the rest of the world. And I'm afraid that our culture, our culture only thinks of uh, the negative kind of side of this, where it, where it says, okay, you just kind of go hide in the closet and, you know, yeah, you're beautiful on the inside, but whatever. No. The church, the people of God, the world need that beauty to be on display. The way that you treat your husband, the way that you treat your kids, the way that you treat those that God has put in relationship with you, that's beauty. And that comes from the Lord Jesus. And he's put it inside of you so that it will come out of you. God's word encourages Christian women to focus on the heart. Ladies, this is the woman that your man truly longs for. This is the woman that your man truly longs for when we come, and we, when we take it down to brass tacks here. The strong spiritual dependence of a woman whose affections are fixed on Christ is more attractive than anything else in the world to a Christian man. And I've never met a Christian man that would disagree with that. Let your adorning, let your beauty be on the inside. Let that be your focus. I want to close with this. Three words for women here at New City Church. First is this, and these are adapted from a pastor in North Carolina. I'm not this clever to come up with these, but they're good. I wanted to share them with you. God has a tremendous calling on your life. It's the first thing I want you to remember from today. God has a tremendous calling on your life. What God has called you to, he will equip you for. And we as Christian men desperately need you to live out your unique identity in Christ. Because in that we see more of Jesus than we could in any other way, you are very uniquely gifted and you are crucial to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Secondly, as I said, you are gifted. You are fearfully and wonderfully made as the Psalms teach. 
And God gives, I want to say this in gifted. I want to talk a little bit about spiritual gifts. I don't want to get, I figured I've already opened up the can of worms with women in marriage. Why not open it all the way up with women in ministry? Go ahead and open this thing all the way up. God, I just want to say this. God gives women every single spiritual gift that he gives men. And I know most of the time when we look at the scriptures, we don't say that. But God gives women every single spiritual gift that he does men. Now the question is, how do those gifts play out? The husband's called to lead the wife's spiritual. In the same way, kind of that, that headship goes in the church. The men are called to lead the church. And the wives are called to lead right underneath them. And so we want to see that happening at New City Church. We want to see the Lord Jesus being magnified through the way that you use your gifts in the church because God has gifted you in a very special way. And lastly, I want to say this. You can do all things by trusting. You can do all these things that God's called you to do by trusting God's order. I think sometimes uh, we, we develop this false dichotomy. Or women are tempted to develop a false dichotomy which says this. You have to choose between using your gifts and respecting God's order. So it's kind of like that inferiority distortion that I talked about. That women think that, okay, well, my gifts have to go and die if I want to be a Christian. That I really can't lead like God's called me to lead. That's a lie. We can do all these things the way that God's designed it to happen. And this is the whole reason Jesus came to reorder everything that had been broken. And we want to see that happen in an ever-increasing manner here in Lawrenceville, here at New City Church. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for you. We're thankful that you're good, that you're perfect in all your ways, that you're gracious, and that you give us a family, that you show us who you are by giving us the family of God, and for those that are married, by giving spouses. Lord, marriage is more about you than it is me. Beat that into our brains this week. Let us see that the only marriage that really matters is our marriage in Christ, our union with Christ, that has been... Has been uh, inaugurated, but it's not yet come in its fullness. So continue to work this out in our lives. Give husbands and wives grace as they have, you know, maybe, maybe difficult lunchtime conversations today. Give them grace. Make their homes an environment of grace where, where your spirit can come alive and flourish in their families. All to the sake of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.